page 11, 12, Matthew 2, verse 2. Actually, we'll start in verse 1. That way it'll be flow a little better. On page 11, 12, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So the kings were coming to worship him in this way not to come and sing, not to gather together, but to come and bow down before him and to lay down before him, to lay their own selves down and to kiss the ground, to adore him. All right, let's turn a few pages over to page, uh, up to chapter 8, verse 2. So chapter 8, just a few pages over on 1119. And it says, Behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I I thought about these times that we come and we pray for things and we want God to work in our lives and do things mightily. And we want to see his miracles and we want to see him as in his fullness and we want to see his presence. But this place, this, this man... His, his whole life is destroyed because he, he has leprosy and he can't go into town and he can't be a part of the city and he is just, his body has got sores all over it and he's in a horrible place and I see that he's trusting in Jesus in this place not to just come and have a simple prayer but this place that he is falling down before him. I don't think we've ever understood the fullness of what's happening here. This this man comes and he's bowing down. He's laying down before Jesus. He's kissing the ground. He's adoring him. He is begging him, Lord, if you're willing, can you make me clean? The heart. Then if we look at 918, just a page over. Again, this man is coming, and he says in verse 18, while he spoke these things to them, so Jesus is speaking, then a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. Oh, my goodness. If we had just experienced what this man has experienced, that his daughter has died, and we know that Jesus has the power to raise her up, then we don't just come in this simple way of just a small prayer, of just being so casual as we come to request of Jesus. But he comes in a place of worship, of bowing down, of falling before Jesus, adoring who Jesus is. 
crying out, My daughter has died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. I just think it helps us to see a little bit of what this understanding of worship looks like. Look at uh, chapter 14, a few pages over, verse 33. And there's a storm. If you remember, the disciples are in the in the boat with Jesus and there's a storm and starting in verse 31 it says and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him Uh, oh I'm sorry there's a storm and Peter is walking on the water here and he gets to this place He, he wants to get out of the boat and come to Jesus I believe that's where I am let me see let me see here I've read so many of these uh Let's look, start in verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, then they were troubled and saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out of fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They bowed down. They worshipped. This is what we go back to John 3. We go, I mean, John 4, we go back here and we see that the Father is seeking those to worship him in this way, in this place of bowing down, in this place of being totally, totally um, surrendered of our own selves that we're laying before the Lord. But then, as I was saying, it brings us to this place to understand the fullness of, of worship when we look at Psalms uh, 99. So look at Psalms, it's on page 688. Six eighty-eight. Psalms 99, verse 5. Psalms 99, verse 5, it says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. He is holy. This word to bow down, to bow before him, that is the call that God is calling us to. 
Then I want you to turn with me to John 14, verse 6. It's on page 1241. As we look at this understanding of truth, we looked at this a little bit last week as well. John 14, verse 6. It's on page 1241. Because as we come in this bowed place, in this surrendered place, he's asking us to come also in the spirit and in truth. So looking at truth, Jesus helps us to understand a little bit in verse 6. Jesus says to him, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. If you look up this word truth, it really mean, means divine revelation to man. Divine revelation, divine truth revealed to man. We talked a little bit about that understanding last week, looking at Psalms 119 on page 709. So this understanding of divine revelation and how would that come to us? Psalms 119 on page 709. Psalms 119 verse 142 your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. If you look down at the bottom of the page at verse 151, it says, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. They're divine revelation. They have revealed to mankind who God is through his law and through his commandments, this is truth. Turn to John 17, 17. It's on page 1245. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So in these couple of scriptures, we can see his law, his commandments, his word. The whole word is truth. It's biblical. It's divinely revealed. Now I want to turn back to John 3 on page, divine, uh, John 3, it's on page 1223, verse 21. 
We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus says, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Those people who do the truth, he says, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. They align in truth and in who God is. So that helps us to understand a little bit about truth. Spirit, we talked about this last week just a little bit. It tells us in John 4, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We're told in 1 Thessalonians that we are body, soul, and spirit. Our spirit must align with his spirit to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Our spirit must come into agreement, in alignment, in spirit because God is spirit, and God is truth. As we talked last week, this spirit and truth go together. They're not separated. They're all cut to come together to create a fullness of the picture. I bring this to you today because I want to talk to you a little bit about walking in this place of spirit and truth, of worshiping God, of our lives reflecting that we honor God with our worship in spirit and in truth. We've just come out of the Christmas season, and many people have said to me, as, as we've talked to people about Christmas, people have said to me, I can worship my Savior's birth anytime. And it seems right. And, and these are people that are Christian people. People who love Jesus, who want to be in alignment with Jesus, and have been taught something that seems right. So even though we've come out of the Christmas season, I felt like the Lord was drawing me to look at this very thing and to talk about how we should respond, how we should believe about this situation. And so it comes to this place of truth. Is Christmas biblical? Is it truth? So I want to share several things that God has laid upon my heart this morning. The first thing being, if it's not biblical, should it be a part of a Christian life? So we need to look at this and see for sure if this is a biblical understanding. So turn with me to page 1179, Luke 2. Verse 4, page 1179, Luke 2, starting in verse 4. <clears throat> 
Caesar has decreed that uh, everyone would have to register. So they would have to go and register. So in starting in verse 4, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his, wife, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, and you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them in the heavens that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherd. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Okay, so there's the account or one account of Jesus' birth. And what we see first and foremost is it does not tell us a day or a time. It doesn't say it's in December, and it certainly doesn't tell us it's on the 25th of December. In fact, it doesn't tell us at all what time it is. Now, there's a lot of speculation because it says that the uh, shepherds were out here in the field and with their flock, so many people believe that this was possibly late September, sometime in October, when they would be out in the fields and with their flock. But we don't even know that. So I would never come here and say, I believe we're supposed to celebrate this time in September or October, because God is very specific about what he tells us. And he does not tell us a day or a month that Jesus was born in. It's not biblical. It's not biblical to assume we can come to celebrate on a certain day. Christmas is not mentioned in the Bible anywhere. You can look up in your concordance and there is no word Christmas in the Bible. 
nor is there any time that they celebrated the birth of Jesus in any way outside of the actual event. So it's never written about it another time when Jesus celebrated it or when the disciples celebrated it, the apostles didn't celebrate it, Paul did not write about it, none of the writers wrote about celebrating it, the early church did not celebrate Christmas. So God didn't tell us to celebrate it, and they didn't celebrate it. In fact, it was not celebrated, as far as we know, it was documented in about 320 B.C. in the 4th, I'm sorry, 320 A.D., in about the 4th century after Jesus was born, that it did come to a place where it was being celebrated. And this was a time when Constantine was ruler over Rome. And even in, uh, as I was looking up, you can find on the internet lots of information, but one of the places that I found was very interesting this year. It's a place where Constantine, actual pieces of his letter written to the Council of Nicaea, uh, gave us some understanding because he actually changed the days that the Christians and the Jewish people would celebrate Passover to align with Easter, and he added this place of celebration of Christmas. And he states in his letter, it says, It was in the first place declared improper to follow the custom of the Jews in the celebration of this holy festival. He's talking about their Passover. Because their hands being stained with crime, the minds of these wretched men are necessarily blinded. Let us then have nothing in common with the Jews who are our adversaries, let us studiously avoid all contact with their evil ways. How, for how can they entertain right views of any point who, have, who after having compassed the death of the Lord, being out of their minds, are, guild, are guided not by sound reason, but by an unrestrained passion, where their innate madness carries them. So he has a lot of disdain for the Jewish people. He says, therefore, this irregularity must be corrected in order that we may no more have anything in common with the murderers of our Lord. So Constantine made it illegal to have anything to do with the Jewish people or anyone celebrating God's feast or God's ways according to Jewish understandings. So he did away with all the feasts. So the early Christian church that was celebrating God's feast could no longer do that without breaking the laws and penalty of death. 
I want to look at a couple of things here. Look with me in Deuteronomy 4. It's on page 205. While you're turning there, I want to remind you, as Constantine did away with the feast, the feast were God's celebrations. He placed those in the Bible as commandments for the Jewish people, the house of Israel, for the Jewish people, house of Judah, for the children of Israel, and for those who were grafted into them, the Christian church. The Jews understood that these were God's celebrations, God's appointed times. And we've taught on these many times. We see these were not Jewish feasts, but these are God's appointed feasts a time to come and worship him as he has set in place. Anything that we add to that is adding to his celebrations. So when people come and say to me, we can worship Jesus' birth anytime we want to, we can celebrate it on this day, or we can celebrate it on another day. I wonder if that is biblical, if that is truth. So I want to give you some scriptures that I think help us to determine that. So looking in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So God is saying you cannot add to or take from my word. I want to look at Revelation 22. It's on page 1426. There's an Old Testament scripture in Deuteronomy. There's a New Testament scripture on page 1426 in Revelation 22, the very back of your Bibles, starting in verse 18. It says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, some people believe that that is regarding only revelation. But I love that God would give us this understanding in Deuteronomy, and then he gives it to us again in Revelation. It's the same understanding. And it says, If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Wow. 
So God enlarges our understanding about adding to the book. He told us in Deuteronomy, don't add to it, don't take away from it. Now he tells us in Revelation, if you add to anything to his book, to his word, to his truth, to his commandments, to his teachings, to his truth, it says that he will add that God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. I wonder if we would attribute any of the sickness and disease, any of the destruction in our countries, any of the destructions in our family, if we would attribute it to the fact that we've added to God's word. And if that would trouble us. Verse 19 says, And if anyone takes away from the word of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Staying in truth, in divine revelation, was important to God. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3. It's on page 1386. I'm sorry. No, it's on 1368. Sorry. 1368. 2 Timothy, we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it says that all scripture has been inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine. There doesn't need to be any extra doctrine added to what God has written down for us in his word. And that it's complete. And it's equipped us completely for everything for his purpose. Let's look at one last one, Matthew 15. Oh, let me give you, I didn't catch a page number here. Matthew 15. It's going to be on page 11, 28, uh, 29, 11, 29. Because I would submit to you that Christmas is merely a tradition. It is not something the Bible in, in any way directs us to keep or commands us 
or encourages us to be a part of. So it's a tradition of man. Matthew 15, starting in verse 7, Jesus talks about some traditions that the Pharisees are keeping, different from Christmas, but this is his thoughts about it. He calls them hypocrites. Well, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, I feel that we have set up Christmas, and as I've watched it unfold in my life and in all those around me, it is set up as a biblical place, as a place the church embraces. In fact, many people say we have to get Christ back in Christmas. That is an untruth. Christ was not a part of Christmas. Christ was never a part of Christmas, and he's not a part of Christmas today. It's a tradition of man that we are teaching as doctrines. We're teaching it as doctrine, and yet it's a commandment or it's a uh, tradition set up by man. Okay, a couple of other things I want to share with you. Uh, let's talk about the wise man. We're just talking about some things that are untruth. Uh, let's look at page Matthew 2. So turn a few pages over to, math, to page 12, 11, 12, Matthew 2, verse 10. So every manger scene, every nativity scene that you come to outside of a church, inside of a church, talked about with the church, always has the same people there, has some shepherds, has some animals, has baby Jesus, has the mother, Mary, has Joseph, the dad, and it has the wise men. So looking in this at page, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 2, starting in verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, this is talking about the wise men, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, so we see these wise men, they are coming, but they are not coming at the birth of Jesus. At this point in time, it specifically says a young child. See that? A young child. How old was Jesus at this time? Nobody really knows. The Bible doesn't tell us again. But it does tell us he's not a baby. He's a young child. 
Some people believe that he was around the age of two because of the reaction of Herod that he killed every child two years and younger. So many people say Jesus was around the age of two. But here's what I want to tell you. It doesn't tell us that, so we can't say that. But what it does tell us is the wise men were not there at Jesus' birth. Even though we put them there every time. It also doesn't tell us that there were three wise men. We always have three. Why? Because there were three gifts. We don't know that each one brought one gift and that that's all there were. There could have been hundreds of wise men. We don't know. There could have been two wise men bringing three gifts. We really don't know. But again, we've created this doctrine this tradition that the church has supported as truth. As some of you know, as Constantine changed the way people were celebrating the feast because he wanted to be considered one of the great emperors and he was trying to not kill everybody. He said, listen, I won't kill you Jewish people if y'all would just obey me. But he hated the Jewish people and so he took away their feast which prophesied of the things that God wanted us to celebrate in Jesus' life. The feast, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, all of the feast. They prophesy of his birth, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, of the spirit being given to the church. And also of his second coming. Those are the things Jesus did that the feast prophesy of and that God wanted us to come and celebrate. But never is it mentioned anything about his birth. As many of you know, there was a pagan holiday on December 25th. There was a, a celebration of what's called winter solstice that began on December the 17th through usually the 21st to the 23rd, depending on the different times of, of uh, history, called Saturnalia. And this was a celebration, really, of the winter beginning. But it was also a place of sacrifice and a place of dancing and carousing and craziness. And then a couple of days after that came Sol Invictus, which was a celebration of the sun god, the unconquerable sun god. On December 25th, it was considered his birth because that was the first day that the sun would actually be longer in the sky. So winter solstice between December the 17th and 
uh, I'm sorry, yes, the 17th and the 23rd were the shortest days of the year. But the sun began to come back in a longer time on the 25th of December. So the people rejoiced in this place. And the reason is, is because they had seen the destruction of the winter. It was cold. It was dark. People were sick. People were dying. There was little food. That was what winter brought. So there was a great celebration when the sun was in the sky longer. And they began to see it. And so they oftentimes would sacrifice their children or other people in a way of appeasing the sun god. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. So when Constantine began to change how the Jewish people and the early Christian church worshipped God, he said, you can come and celebrate to your God if you choose these days that the pagans are already using. So Christmas began to be celebrated, the Son of God, on the same day as the Son God. And it was an attempt to stop God's festivals and his feast. So you have to see the enemy at work in this place of trying to push out God's plan of celebrating and remembering forever and starting a new tradition claiming it to be truth. The Christmas tree. I just have to talk about that for a second. Turn with me to Jeremiah 10. It's on page 880. Page 880, Jeremiah 10. Page 880, Jeremiah 10, verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the ways of the Gentiles. I want, to, I want you to hear that. Do not learn the ways, the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, but the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest... 
the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. So what's happening here is that the pagans, the Gentiles, during the winter time, believed that you could cut down an evergreen tree that carried spirits. They believed that there were good spirits and evil spirits in trees. And they would bring in the trees that they thought had the good spirits because they remained green during the winter. So they would go out and cut down the evergreen trees and bring it into their house during the cold winter months and set it in their house for protection over their house. They would decorate it and they would nail it so that it wouldn't fall over. So a lot of people will argue and say, well, that's not what my Christmas tree is about. And I hear that. That's maybe not your idea that you would bring a Christmas tree in to bring good spirits into your house. But my point would be the very first place that God says is, do not learn the way of the Gentile. So that is troubling to me that we've taken Christmas and done the exact same thing that God said, don't do this. Don't, don't bring those trees into the house and decorate them and stand them up. He didn't say, if you do this only because you believe it has a spirit. He says, don't do it. So the Christmas tree is a pagan ritual brought into the traditions of Christmas. Santa Claus. I just got to talk about Santa Claus a minute. One of the things I hear sometimes people say is that, well, I don't really believe that it's the religious side of Christmas that we're celebrating. We're just celebrating the Santa Claus side. And I've thought about that because uh, it just incenses me. And, and I did this. I understand it. But I did repent of it. And I see how misguided we have all been. And we've all been brought into these understandings. But what we do is we begin at a very early age of lying to our children. Now, the very first thing we teach them is that you can't lie. Don't lie. Do not lie to your parents. Do not lie, period. And the very first thing that we do is we start our kids out, usually when they're still a baby, at teaching them about a man who supposedly knows everything about them, knows all things, is watching them all the time, whether they're good or bad, and that he's going to bring gifts to them accordingly. First of all, I believe that this lying 
places into them a spirit of lying. I believe the Lord began to show me. He said, this is where lying is birthed, into children. In many cases. But I also see that it brings unbelief of Jesus. Because at a very young age, we teach them that there's this man who watches them all the time, who knows all things, and then we tell them we've lied to them. And then we tell them about Jesus, who sees them, who knows their every need, and we expect them to believe us. The Bible has something to say about that. So look with me at Psalms 101 on page 689. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that we see in God's law that he says, do not lie. But he reminds us also in this Psalms, Psalms 101, verse 7, says, He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Wow. So is it okay to lie to your children? Well, it says that he who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. One of the other places that I see that is against God's truth is Christmas creates a desire for stuff. That's what I want to say. A desire for more stuff. Never being satisfied. Always needing more. Always wanting. And it teaches everyone that they should want and want and want. And the Bible has a few things to say about this. Look at Luke uh, I'm sorry, look at 1 John 2. It's on page says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
if that's not a picture of Christmas, I don't know what is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I was right here. I loved Christmas. We had everything decorated. I went into debt to buy Christmas gifts for everybody I loved. I taught them to want more and more and whatever they wanted, no matter what the cost was, I charged it to make it happen, to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But it troubles me because it says when we teach people to love this place, the love of the Father is not in him. As I was studying and over the last few years have looked up many things and, and learned a lot of things about Christmas and the destruction I believe that it brings to, to each of us. But it's interesting because the Puritans, when they came to America, forbid anyone to celebrate Christmas because they knew it was pagan. But through the years... Satan began to deceive and to bring the destruction into our country. Coca-Cola was actually instrumental in giving the big kick to Christmas because it started out with the commercials for Coke. And it really pushed Christmas forward in a in a large way. What I do want to leave you with today is some things that I think God wants me to remind each one of us. And uh, so turn with me to Romans 12. No, I'm sorry, 1 Peter. Let's go to 1 Peter, page 1391, just a few pages back. The things I believe that God wants us to remember this time of year and really I pray would keep these things in our heart all year so as these things come before us we would not be tempted to draw into them. The first scripture is 1 Peter 1 verse 15 and 16 it says but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in your conduct holy means set apart if you look at christmas even though the church claims christmas for itself everybody celebrates christmas Atheists celebrate Christmas. Unbelievers celebrate Christmas. Christians celebrate Christmas. It's interesting, even Wiccan, an organization of witches and demonic teachings 
acknowledges this place of Christmas. So it says that we're to be holy, set apart. I will promise you, if you don't celebrate Christmas, you are set apart. It is a difficult walk. It is a challenging place. But it is where you're called. Verse 16 says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Looking down to chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's read that again. This is who we're supposed to be set apart. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the last one I want to leave with you is Romans 12 on page 1305. As I read this last couple of verses to you, it is my prayer for you. It is my prayer for you that you've heard these truths today and that you can see easily this is not a biblical holiday. This is a pagan holiday, a traditions of man set up against the Most High God. Paul writes, in 12.1, and I feel like it's appropriate for us today. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that what is that good what is that's good and acceptable and perfect will of god what is good acceptable and perfect will of god stand with me please Thank you.
give life You are love You bring light to the darkness You give hope You restore every heart that is broken And great are you, Lord It's your breath and our lungs So we pour out our praise We pour out our praise It's your breath and our lungs So we pour Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. 